Uh, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome to the stage uh, the film's director, Josh Cooley. Uh, its producers, Mark Nielsen and Jonas Rivera, and the voice and indeed soul of Woody himself, Mr. Tom Hanks. Thank you. What's wrong with a free movie on Sunday? <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Congratulations all on the film. Uh, and also, how dare you, because I don't think I was emotionally embraced for that ending, despite having been you know, a follower of Toy Story for, you know, since, since the first film. There was something about that final separation that just got me absolutely here. Yeah. Tom, I'm interested, when the film was initially pitched to you, because there, there was a sense that Toy Story 3 was going to be the end of it, when the fourth project was presented, was that separation between Woody and Buzz always a key part of the, what the story was going to be? The evolution of our involvement on this has, after the first one, has always been, when they've come to us with the idea for whatever another one was going to be, I think for all of us was, really? <laughs> <laughs> You think you can top that? I mean, you know, <laughs> or do you think you can equal it somehow? Uh, it's not a, it's not a necessarily like incredulity or like you know prove it. It's just the the, the powers it picks are. And, uh, these guys represent hundreds of of equal artists of imagineering and uh, uh, and uh, intelligence, and no one takes the Toy Stories lightly, <clears throat> um, and. The third one, uh, I mean, it had an ending that was just about as, uh, as transcendental as I think as you're going to get. You know, the, the toys reach out for each other at the moment of their, you know, potential demise. I say, well, that kind of like is a, a lesson for humanity, all wrapped up into, into one little cartoon about talking toys. Um, and so when when the idea comes for just for not not the fourth one per se, but just as another one. Um, the, the question really was, well, if you, you think, you think, <laughs> you think we can do this? Do you think you guys and us guys can, can pull it off? And to the, and we, we never, we no longer have like scripts that we read. The first Toy Story, uh, the screenplay, yeah. I, did, who worked on the first one? I worked on you the were first around one. for the first one. The first one was actually a screenplay that you'd read right. just like anything, matched up with a room full of animatics that you just followed the story along. The second one was sort of a screenplay as well, but we didn't bother really reading it so much because it, it goes through so many different permutations. The third one, they just showed us an animatic of what the movie was going to be like, which was hand drawings with uh, scratch tracks and, and, and dialogue. But this one, we just, we just kind of showed up. And yeah. they explained, <laughs> here's what we're going to do, and here's what's going to happen, and uh, here, here's the beginnings of the scenes that we're going to start recording. And so um, it, had, it had evolved into this this process of just trust. Trust that you guys were not taking it lightly. Um, trust that we weren't just banging out something because the, the franchise was popular. Trust that they had already weighed their responsibility in, in order to make a Toy Story that was going to be the equal of all the one. Not just each individual story, but the, the, sum, the sum total of all three up to that point. Jonas, given you, you've been at the studio for so long, um, yep. tell us about that weighing process. Because clearly there's always going to be, oh, we could do another one. But what, what was the tipping point where you thought this is actually a story that needs to be told? Well, I think when we, we, we had the same reservations ab ab about it. I mean, the, the, the three of us, to be honest, when it was first, it was, uh, I go out? It was Andrew Stanton, 
who had kind of squirreled away after the third film, even when the third film was still going. Yeah, still going. And he was writing the basic bones, just the idea of what this would turn into. And when we heard about it, we said, it's, but it's, that's the end, that's the beautiful end. And his thing was very adamant. He's like, no, no, no. Toy Story is, is about uh, Woody. And that third ending, although it's a great ending and we're all proud of it, that's about Andy and Woody. That's that conclusion. There is another chapter. And we said it that way. That was a different mental model. We started to sit forth. But I think we still knew we had to honor, we had to go further than that ending. And we had to prove that to the world that this wasn't just a, a oh, part of the story we forgot to tell you. But that this was a part of the story that you wouldn't be able to live without if you saw the whole saga that it would have to be. So that was the bar we set internally. And you, know, you kind of came up with that, that, that core idea that it would have to be Bo that something big has to change him in a way we haven't seen. And that felt, to us, movie-worthy. We started to sit forward a little bit in our seats and go, okay, that's, that feels like there's enough meat there. And then we had that, we came up with the idea of the ending, and um, we, it was extremely nervous to pitch that, even to pitch it to Tom. Yeah. And just, it was just because it's such a big deal. And we kind of were like, can we do this? Can we even, is this even possible? And then it became, uh, we, we have to do this. Like, that's, that's the great, that's the, that's the arc of Woody. You know, he's finally doing something for himself in a big way. Mm -hmm. And Josh, you were originally on this as co-director, and then I think a couple yeah. of years into it, as, as the story was shifting around, you, you were promoted to sole director. What was changing at that point? I mean, was the, that core Woody and Bo story that was the, the, the core of the film all the time, or was that something? Well, that, that Bo Peep's return was always the, was kind of the genesis of this film. In fact, we called it the movie Peep internally as a, a code name. So she was always a part of it. And I'd say that at that, at that point when I became director, it was, um, we always had fun with Bo's return, but it wasn't impacting Woody's life in a major way. And, um, and so I was given the freedom to question everything. Like, you know, it was just like, regardless of where we've been, now that you're in charge, do make it, you know, you have to own it, you have to, it has to be emotional. So I actually thought about my relationship with my wife and how she's changed my views on things over the world, you know, over my, over my time with her. And uh, I thought if, if there's a way we can make that on screen, if Bo can come into his life and change him in a major way, that felt uh, movie worthy to me. And uh, then the ending kind of grew out of that. Mm -hmm. Mark, can you talk also about how the, how the story developed? Were there any dead ends that you kind of initially thought this was going to be the, a, a key part of the story? Yeah, yeah, there, there are a lot of dead ends uh, that we hit along the way. These movies start out pretty bad uh, when we're working on them. Um, how much time do we have? Really bad. <laughs> yeah. That's horrible. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, we have this iterative process where we've got story and editorial building up reels that we'll watch in a, in a movie theater. Um, on our campus every four months, and we'll watch it, and we'll get notes from our brain trust, we'll tear it down, we'll rewrite it, we'll board it, cut it, put it back together again, four months later, and, and do that same thing over again. And we do that over and over, so there were probably 12 versions uh, of this movie, and, and it, didn't, it didn't always have Buzz and Woody saying goodbye to each other at the end. We, we found that uh, along the way. I, I'd say we probably were halfway through our development process on this film before we came to the conclusion that that was, that that, that could be a big move and, and, the, and the right move for, for this particular story. We had, uh, we began recording the very first Toy Story movie yeah. in 1991. And there was a completed version of the first Toy Story 
that was thrown out. <clears throat> the, the plot was the same, more or less. Yeah. The story was more or less the same. But there was, there was an attitude and a DNA and a kind of like uh, a modern day kind of like cutting cynicism to it yeah. that um, was, might have been funny in one way, but it wasn't, <clears throat> it, 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 there was something that was deep in the, I, I think in the, the emotional need of the movie that wasn't being met on that tape. Mm. And it was interesting to get a call from, from the entire brain trust yeah. uh, who just said, okay, uh, we'd like to come up and completely re-record the entire movie because <laughs> we're 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 taking a completely brand new approach. And I had never seen it; I didn't know what was going on. But everybody just said okay, and we just continued along in the process. So this is not. And I think in other movies, if you had, you know, in a standard movie that you shoot with actors on it in locations, if you if you went down that many uh, uh, dead ends, you'd be you'd be toast, you know, they would they'd never, let, they'd never let you work in the motion picture industry again. That's why we but, like animation. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, but the fact that you guys always go back, you take what we did, what we did, and, the, and you test it so supremely, and out of that testing, it just becomes a whole different sort of mm -hmm. recipe, and it's the only way, it's the reason, I think, that Toy Story, and, and a lot of the other, certainly other, the what I like to call the lesser Pixar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's, it's the reason that they have this, this gravitas that I think a lot of other films don't. How do you think that gravitas has developed then? Because even in, in, in the first film, as it was you know, the, the completed version that, that we saw, Woody's you know, famous line, you are a toy, there's yeah. a kind of a, an existential weight to that, right? And then in this one, you're ref there's reflections on what happens when your, your kids grow up and leave home? You know, what happens if you're divorced or widowed? You find a new chapter of your life where you don't really know what your purpose is anymore. So, uh, Tom, how have you, you yeah. felt that, that kind of well, developed it, it, over the Well, it comes out from, from this earnestness that begins at the very beginning because the relationship between Andy and Woody is one of sheer, unadulterated love. <clears throat> and even now, when, when Woody is talking about, oh, no, I had a kid once, and the way he talks about that bond between a toy and his kid, it's it's like the, it's the, the reason we exist in the universe, in the zeitgeist, is to share our love with our owners. That's powerful. And it, I think it's something that everybody can immediately understand and recognize. But then it leads to sort of questions, which is, well, what happens when, when the kid grows up? And the handoff from Andy to, to Bonnie is like, you, you better come up with a real reason why that's going to mean something. You know, you, you gotta you gotta come up with a reason that Bonnie is uh, is is identified with your toys as before because it is like a second life that they all get. So, so let me get this straight. Then that kind of love between a toy and its owner can become, dare we say it, eternal as long as the toy gets passed on to someone else who is yearning for that same sort of connection. And then when Toy Story Four, with the develop of, of Forky, which is comes out of <laughs> comes out of her own imagination, but still has all of that great power of connectionness. There is some sort of like storytelling DNA that I think is, that is classic, that goes back to the reason that the, you know, the Greeks and Shakespeare would, were able to come up with relationships that made you lean forward and say, I, I know what that is. That's, that's just like what I feel. Mm -hmm. I think with Forky particularly, there's a lot to unpack there, right? I mean, <laughs> was, what was the, the, the inspiration behind that character? I mean, was, was it always going to be a fork, for example? Or was, were there explorations of different kinds of crafted creations? You, you, that you know what's funny? Um, we started it off as a joke. We were sitting in, <laughs> in the story room, 
And we, you know, we sit around and just talk about Toy Story and the rules of the world and everything. And you know, our, we look at our own kids for inspiration and in how they play. And uh, you know, our kids will pick up that bottle and go do 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 do, and, and it's a, some sort of toy for a moment, right? And uh, we were thinking, what would happen in the Toy Story world if that happened? Does that mean that bottle's alive? Does it have feelings? Does it? Because everything in Toy Story has a purpose. So uh, and that therefore a spork, its purpose is to be used for soup, salad, maybe chili, and then go in the trash. But now it has a new purpose because Bonnie has created it. So all, all of a sudden, this idea of, and we've never done a handcrafted toy, so we're always looking for any kind of toy truths as well. And all of a sudden, this thing literally in, our, in the story room came to life as an idea. And to have a character, especially for a fourth film, I think this is what helps tremendously, to have a character that has never seen Toy Story 1 through 3, <laughs> we all have, we know the rules of the world, this guy does not know anything. And there's just built-in comedy gold right there. Mm -hmm. So we just kept going with it and uh, knew Tony Hale, kind of the first name that popped into our heads because he can play insecure and anxious and loving and emotional and just hilarious all at the same time. Remember we, we were saying that we, we didn't know if it was, the, we said it, it was like, is this the worst idea or the best idea? We don't know, like it was kind of it's both of them. One of the two. Yeah. And it was the stupidest idea. Little of the stupidest idea. But, but it was one two hour meeting where the idea came up and by the end of that meeting, there was just a whole bunch of drawings of characters that were sporks. So it was, spor <laughs> yeah, it was a sporks. spork from the beginning. But the animation, problems that that must create must be enormous because unlike the other toys, this guy has no obvious points of articulation. Yeah. It's no waste. It wasn't <laughs> a problem though. It was actually, we used that to our benefit because we're always trying to stay true to, to the material. So even Woody, when he runs around, he's like a rag doll, but, um, and, and Buzz is very stiff, but we wanted to make him feel different from everybody else. And so the animators would do these tests and they'd be so good. And I'd say, no, make it crappier. Like, <laughs> that's too good. He should, he should be weird and stiff and awkward and only bend from the gum at the bottom. So it became a, uh, actually became a positive thing. That's actually a great direction to get. Let's make it crappier. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you hired the right person for that. So I can make, I can make that a lot. But Josh, I remember you saying, like, let's have it animate as if a little girl is holding it and, and, and moving yeah. it, like he's being piloted by a child. That really influenced the way he's animated. There's, there's a moment where his hand goes on top of Gabby oh, Gabby. That's our favorite. That's my just, favorite shot in the movie. I was stunned by that. Yeah. It's so lifelike in a, in a strange way, even though it's you know a pipe cleaner on top of plastic. Yeah. Uh, we should open this to questions from the floor. Um, do we have microphones? Yeah, we do. Okay, so l let's let's start down here. Thank you. Uh, Tom, thank you for all of your many fantastic performances over oh, the years. Um, I just wondered how you pick your roles and what brings you to the different roles that you play? I, I've become very lucky because um, I have enough, uh, I, I can afford uh, takeout curry a couple of times a week and I'm, I made my rent. So <laughs> after that, it's like I, I literally have nothing to lose. Um, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm lucky in order to, to, if something comes around, the, the choice I have is, is, it, is, can it really be good? Do, can, I, can I already answer the questions? I don't, do I not have any questions as far as what goes on? And also, it, will it be fun? Uh, or, uh, and some combination of those usually, uh, usually come to pass. Uh, I, I think I'm very fortunate because um, I have the luxury of saying no. Uh, and that's important. I, I don't have to. Um, I'm older now. <laughs> um, I, have, I have nothing 
as far as like the pipeline goes in order to establish myself in the business or anything like that. And it's, it's very hard to say no sometimes because you might have a grand adventure, you could work with people that you really admire, uh, you know, you might, uh, uh, you might get to go somewhere that you've never been, but if there isn't something that really speaks to you deeply inside, well, uh, uh, then you, you do have to say, I've been very lucky is that I've had the luxury of be being able to say, say no for quite some time. But I've never said no to the Toy Story guys. At the, because it is, it comes down to that level of trust. If, if, if they think they have something, well then, I hope that we can all live up to it. When you return to playing Woody, do you think of him as having aged in between films? No, not at all. I think that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, there is a huge amount of muscle memory that comes back to it. The last recording session I had was in the same room where we had the first recording session in 1991. And Doc is Doc behind Kane. board. Yeah. Uh, it's in Studio, uh, Studio, Stage B. B. Studio B at Disney, a legendary place um, where an awful lot of stuff has been recorded. And to be there and have the stand in the same place and the microphone in the same place and the glass all there, um, there is uh, an instantaneous <clears throat> gestalt uh, uh, memory of everything that we've ever done as, 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 as Woody. And on occasion, I might say, you know, the wording of this isn't quite Woody-esque. Mm -hmm. Can we play around with it? And they say, yeah, absolutely. And we all land on something that always comes back to to the, uh, the whole thought process that Woody had. In fact, a couple of times I remember relying on that. I, we, I remember saying, like, we did not figure this out yet. We have a bunch of words here. Can you help us put them in the right order? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go for another question. Um, yeah, and just, just there. Thanks, microphone's coming up. Hello. Um, we were walking over here and wondered what were your favorite toys when you were little? Mine was Major Matt Mason, the, Amer the, the posable, bendable uh, astronaut. Um, he was essentially the same technology that went into Gumby. He was, uh, he was rubber and was, had a paper clip inside him that, you know, his arms could be bent like that, and he had a space helmet on. And what was greatest about him was I, I, I bought him myself with my own money. He cost $1.95 at Clark's Drugstore in Red Bluff, California. And when I went to buy him, I didn't realize that there was such a thing called sales tax. So I had $1.95 in exact change, and I had to come back a couple of days later when I had $2.06. I had to find another, six, another nine cents before I could go back and purchase it. But that just led to another 48 hours. Of, Soon I'll have my major yeah. Mason. So it was a big deal. Two trips. Uh, oh, man, I had a... Uh... I had a ventriloquist dummy that I loved. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, my, my younger brother, I chased him around the house with it, and he was terrified. And uh, when I came home one day, and he had stabbed it with a pair of scissors. <laughs> and so. Sorry, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Don't stab dummies. So they are, in fact, a universally creepy toy. Oh, yes. You know, all through the generation. Yeah. But I loved him. His name was Willie Talk. Ah. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, so I told my brother, Willie Talk's going to come back in a major way, and so that's why they're in this film. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I was a kid of the 70s. My favorite toys were my little Star Wars action figures. And in fact, if you look close in, in, the, in the pinball machine, oh, yeah. there's a couple of them having a, having a little, yeah, a little battle, reenacting yes. the moment in Star yeah. Wars in there. So, uh, you know, we try to put our favorite ones in. Did you have the Luke Skywalker that had the lightsaber? Did. You pushed for the little plastic. Yeah, I did. Right. I got the little that early guy. bird set, yeah. as a matter of Love fact. That guy. That's yeah. a classic, man. It is. So, <laughs> yeah. 
I had a red <laughs> El Camino, a little red El Camino car, flames down the sides. It was an STP, you could rip this ripcord through the middle, sparks would shoot out of the bottom, set it down, and it would just go across the floor. Love that thing. I had a friend who grew up in England, he was I was a little older than him, and he had these things, these metal die cast things called Thunderbirds. Yeah. That I did not what is this? What is this? He had also had a supercar, Mike Mercury's supercar that was made out for the same studio and just like oh, and we had never heard of these things. So it's like, what is Thunderbirds? You don't know Thunderbirds. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we have no idea. You know, there's number four on it, number six on it. There's a, a big difference. But, oh, yes, number four is very different from number four. <laughs> uh, another question? Um, yeah, in the, in the middle there. Microphone's just coming up. We'll provide music as the microphone yeah. gets to you from now on. <laughs> Hi, if you weren't Woody in the in Toy Story, which other character would you be? What other toy inside there would I be? Well, uh, you know, picking from all four, I would say Duke Kaboom, but I'm not Canadian, so <laughs> that would there be no point. There'd be no point to it. There was uh, with Lee Ermey when he voiced yeah, uh, was sorry. alive, the late Lee Ermey. He was the 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 green uh, plastic army men. I would have I would have been one of those one of those army men that are forever. Posed holding binoculars up to their <laughs> yeah. up to their eyes, or forever posed dropping a mortar into a yeah. mortar thing. I would have been I would have been one of those guys. <laughs> when you're assembling the the incidental voice rules, like in in the closet scene uh, at the start when Woody is with oh, all yeah. these old timers. Now, I didn't I you know the voices clicked, but I didn't realize who they were until seeing the end credits rule. How I mean, do people just jump on the opportunity to do that? Or? You know that we um, we had Carl and Mel for a this duo role, mm -hmm. uh, Carl Reiner and, and Mel, Mel Brooks. And we, uh, then the story changed, and then we had this idea of uh, putting Woody in the closet. And the idea of having preschool toys voiced by these classic <laughs> comedians just was too good to pass up. So we already had Mel and Carl, and we just kind of altered the role a little bit. And then we said, well, who else could we possibly get for this little group? And uh, Carol Burnett was available, said yes, and, and Betty White as well. And they were phenomenal. They were just so much fun. It's almost like that scene in um, Sunset Boulevard and all the, you know, oh, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they're all playing Buster cards Keaton. together. Yeah, yeah. yeah the old that's how I like to yeah. think of it. So that's uh, kind of to our... you kids out there, Sunset Boulevard is an old movie and <laughs> <laughs> might mean something to your your grandparents. One of the great. Is Steve Carell a voice in this? Did I see mm, that go by? Who no. played? Wait, I, someone no. told me that he was a voice of Benson at some point. I said, I, oh, I Steve Purcell. Oh, then someone misread the story writers. But Carl Weathers is the voice of Combat Carl. Carl Weathers played Apollo Creed and. I did not know you. Named that character. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, in the first one, um, they you know a, there's a lot of licensing that goes along with it, and we had this this um, uh, 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 a soldier action figure, and it, said, it was it says well this is it's a, it's essentially GI Joe, but we we don't have the rights to use GI Joe yet. I said well how about Combat Carl, and that was just an impromptu thing, and from that came Combat Carl. So that's, that's, that's why he's. And now Carl Weathers plays his voice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the new generation of combat. Yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's the three quarters. The smaller race. ones, yeah. it just, you know, never stops. <laughs> the, the, the genius of this stuff never, never stops. I think we've got time for uh, one more question. Yeah, let's, let's... <clears throat> That's the pause yeah. music as they pass out my, the mic. My favorite, sorry, I really, really, really enjoy it. Um, my favorite in joke was the one where Tom is climbing up the typewriter, because I think you collect typewriters, don't you? And I wondered what your other favorite, between you, your favorite little in jokes in the film are. Well, that, there's a lot of Easter eggs in that. Oh, uh, yeah. in the 
curiosity show. Yeah, yeah, we actually, that antique store has something from every Pixar movie that we've ever made, including the short films. Uh, it was a rich environment to go back in and just bring models back to kind of dress into that store, partly because we're lazy, um, <laughs> uh, but mostly because we thought it'd be fun to scout, to scout for things. So um, one, one of them that's in there, uh, Bing Bong's Rocket, for example, from Inside Out is back there on one of the shelves. Carl and Ellie's house from Up is shrunk down and like a little trinket. There, you know, there's oh, is that right? Yeah, there's endless. So there's monster scream cans from Monsters Inc. You can buy them in the store. Guess so. Right. Yeah. The eight millimeter projector as well, right? There's a yeah. lot of the early, early work is sort of referenced yeah. in that scene. Well, Tin Toy is Tin Toy. opens up the the pinball machine there, right? And Tin actually, Toy. the film that that they are using to lift it up is it the beginning of Up? It's the newsreel from the beginning of yeah. Up. The black and white newsreel is on that film strip that they're lowering down. No kidding. Yes. <laughs> Look we, at these guys, isn't it astounding? We, we tried to use Forrest Gump, but they wouldn't let us use it. No, that. no, you can't. <laughs> Couldn't get the right. You can't get that. I would have given you permission, but Paramount Studios might have liked it. We, we do actually have briefly time for one more question. The, the, that little boy there. Yeah. There you go. His hand that went straight up. Um, well, at the end of the movie, uh, when Woody's faced with the decision of going with Buzz or going with Bo, uh, what wonder would you have chosen? Now we're getting to the meat of the question. <laughs> <laughs> Son, when you grow up. <laughs> You'll realize there's only one answer to that question. <laughs> I think on that existential <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you so much.